Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Don't take the bait. Instead, be on your guard. Stay alert. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It's kind of like when you're driving home, both of you are tired. You've had that happen to you too, right? Every now and then, Claudia, I'm going along, I think I'm doing okay, and then all of a sudden, Claudia will punch me in the shoulder. It's like, what? <laughs> Just see if you're still awake. It's like, am I on the road? Yes. Okay. At least I was before you hit me, you know, and then jerked over into traffic. But the reason why we need to stay alert is because so frequently things just kind of go along and we get used to the monotony of it. And he reminds us in 1 Peter 5 that it's your enemy, the devil, that is on the prowl like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now in this last couple of weeks, we've been in a little sermon series about don't take the bait if you want to hear the other sermons in this series, you can check into the website at marysvillechristian.org. Here's the first thing that happens. Satan will set a trap for the same reason that we do when we see a mouse running across the floor. We either want to kill it or we want to cage it and release it into the wild. <clears throat> Most of us just want to kill it and be done with it. But anyway... Satan will bait his trap with a variety of different things. One of the things that he uses to bait his trap with, we talked about in the first week, is bitterness over something that's happened to us or something that's been said about us. And when we take the bait of bitterness, every relationship is either caged or destroyed by the resentment that we harbor in our hearts. A second thing that happens is that Satan will also bait his trap with revenge because when we've been hurt and we're bitter about that, all that we can think of is how do we get even? The only problem is that revenge doesn't remove our anger. It only magnifies our anger. Today I want to warn you about another, another bait that Satan will use in his trap and that is he'll give us reasons to pout and run away from trouble. Now, every now and then, us guys need a little guidance from somebody who's more mature, who's got more wisdom from life. Somebody like Homer Simpson. Well, it's nice you have your best friend back. You should hang with us sometime, Lise. Mm-hmm. I think I'll go to bed now. What's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Boy, are you in trouble. What are you talking about? When a woman says nothing's wrong, that means everything's wrong. And when a woman says everything's wrong, that means everything's wrong. <clears throat> a little equal opportunity for the guys. Last week was a little rough on them with a lot of elbows being thrown. So, you know, ladies, turnabout's fair play, right? A response of nothing will drive us up a wall almost faster than anything else, isn't it? I mean, you can tell their feelings are hurt about something, and yet they're trying to act like they're not. Now, lest you think I'm only talking about our wives, we've, we can be pretty, too, pretty petty, too, as guys. Are you okay? Fine. 
Let me give you a little tip. You're not helping. Don't take the bait. So maybe the question needs to be asked, are you a powder or are you a shouter? Now granted, living with a shouter has its own challenges. And usually repairs that need to be made to drywall or doors. But as shouters, they tend to be explosive and loud, but then it generally blows over pretty quickly. But that's not the way it is living with powders. Because the contrast is like the difference between a microwave and a crock pot. Instantaneous versus slow simmer. Now here's the bait for Christians. We all get angry. We all have to deal with that emotion that happens and, and, and you know, erupts within us. But we know that as Christians we're supposed to be forgiving. We're not supposed to just explode and verbally puke all over people. But there's a difference in being patient gentle, and forbearing versus being passive-aggressive and just not saying anything other than fine. Clearly, you're not fine. What's wrong? Nothing. You see, we convince ourselves we're doing the right thing by running away and hiding from the real problem but when things aren't right even no matter how hard we try and, and you just try to keep chewing it back and chewing it back and and keep trying to swallow it eventually you know how that ends and it doesn't end pretty it all comes back up eventually and when it does it makes a mess let me share with you a story it's in the old testament about a godly guy that took the bait of pout and run now, I'm going to run through this because this is just context for you, okay? But the story of it's found in 1 Kings, if you want to check it out later on. Elijah was the guy's name. He's a major player on God's team in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he's actually one of the most famous prophets in the Bible, so much so that people thought that Jesus was Elijah reincarnated. He confronts the king of his time, King Ahab, with a problem they, he had allowed idol worship to enter in, and he says, you've got to stop letting people worship idols. If you let them bow down, then God's not going to let it rain down for three and a half years as proof that he really is God and not these false idols that you're letting people worship. Now, Elijah had a contemporary named Obadiah. He hid a hundred of God's prophets from King Ahab. Because he was going to kill them all. He was so mad at Elijah. And he actually supported these 100 prophets out of money from the palace. Well, one day he's out looking for grass to feed the animals with. And he runs into Elijah. He doesn't know what to do. Because, see, Elijah was kind of like the Jason Bourne of the Bible. When he doesn't want to be found, he's not going to be found. But look out when he is showing up, right? And he says, Elijah, you've got to be careful. The king's looking for you. And Elijah's response to Obadiah was something like this. You give the message to King Ahab, I want to meet with him. Obadiah gets nervous because he says, well, what if I set this meeting up? And then 
and, and then you're just not there. And, and if God just takes you away, I'm the one going to be left being stupid there. And, and that's not going to go well. My life's on the line then. And he says, you just go ahead and give me the message. I'll be there. Ahab gets the message from Obadiah, the messenger, and he refers to Elijah as, quote, the troubler of Israel. And I know, ooh, wow, that's really harsh. But the bottom line is, it does give you an idea about King Ahab's perspective of Elijah and the respect that he doesn't have for God's spokesman. And Elijah kind of comes back with the equivalent of, well, I know you are, but what am I? You know, real mature. But then he actually calls out the king for allowing people to worship the idols instead of one true God. He says, this has got to stop, so let's settle this once and for all. Does God deserve our worship or not? And so then he throws out this little challenge to him. He says, you bring all of the prophets of your false gods and the ones that aren't really gods at all, and I'll show up on behalf of my God. We'll both pray for a sign, and whoever's God, whoever, whichever God answers, that's the one we know is the one true God. So King Ahab shows up on Mount Carmel. It's up in the northern part of the kingdom. And he brings with him 450 prophets. And that's just for one idol, Baal. Now this morning we've got just under 200 here. Double the number here that you look around. And those are just the people wearing Baal jerseys. Okay? And then there's another 400 prophets of another idol named Asherah because his wife, worships that one so you know blended family he's just trying to do a tip of the hat to her keep her off his back and so you've got 850 prophets there and they pray all morning long asking their god to light the fire on the altar to burn up their sacrifice as proof that their altar that their idol really is the, the true god nothing happens and so Elijah starts talking smack to him, and he starts making fun of him, and he says, cry louder, maybe he's away. Cry louder, maybe he's asleep. And then he just gets real snarky about it. I'm not, this is not just a preacher story. It really is there in the Bible. He says, call louder, maybe he's in the bathroom going number two. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's just how snarky that Elijah had gotten. They are livid and they start cutting themselves to show how serious they are in their devotion they're willing to shed blood for their god interesting since our god was willing to shed blood for us but when the time for the evening sacrifice comes elijah finally stands up and says okay you've had your turn now it's my turn he doesn't want any question about God's presence or his ability, and so he orders them to drench the sacrifices with water. He even has them build, or, you know, dig a, a, a moat, if you will, around the altar, and he fills that. He wants everything completely saturated. So, you know, it's kind of like when your wife hands you a jar and says, hey, can you open this lid? And you do, and she says, well, you know, I loosened it for you. Elijah doesn't want any chance of, well, you know, they just, my, my idol just finally got around to it. You just showed up at the right time. He prays, God, don't embarrass yourself. These people don't think you're really there. Would you show up and light the fire for this sacrifice? A fireball 
drops from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, licks up all the water and the ground all around it. Everybody's just standing there with their jaw hanging open in disbelief, astonished at what they've just seen. And Elijah lays into him. He says, you guys are false prophets and you betrayed our God and you've destroyed our people's faith. And he turns to those around and he says, get him. And the people turn on the prophets who've been lying to them about God, and they killed all of them. Elijah then turns to King Ahab, and he says, told you. Oh, by the way, remember how I said there's not going to be any rain until God says so? You need to get to the house because it's coming. And Elijah begins to pray for God to start the rain. God, don't let me down now. And the clouds begin to form off in the distance. And Elijah is so confident that God's answer his prayer. He takes off running. And he's running so fast going down the hill, he actually passes the king's chariot along the way. Now, all that's the context. That's the backstory. That's the setting for today's message about not taking the bait of pout and run. This is found in 1 Kings 19. Ahab has gone back to stay out of the rain that hadn't started yet. And he tells Jezebel, his wife, oh, Jezebel, I hadn't heard of Obadiah or Ahab, but yeah, everybody's known Jezebel, right? He tells his wife Jezebel what happened to her prophets and to his. And then she tells the king what she wants him to know. 1 Kings 19, verse 2. She says, I swear that by this time tomorrow, you'll be just as dead as those prophets. If I don't succeed, may the gods do the same to me or worse. That's what she once told to Elijah. Well, when Elijah hears this in verse 3, he's scared to death. Now, the same guy that has just faced down 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and the king, and now Jezebel is the one that's got him afraid. And so in verse 3, it says, when he heard this, he was afraid, he ran for his life. And we've already established, he's pretty fast. He takes his servant with him. And they come to Beersheba in Judah. And Elijah leaves his servant there. Now, just a little side note, where they were was up in the northern part of the kingdom. Beersheba is down in the southern part of the kingdom. Elijah's trying to get as far away and put as much distance as he can between him and, Je and Jezebel as he can. Then in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, it says, Elijah walked for a whole day into the desert, and he sat down under a bush, and he just wanted to die. I've had enough, Lord, he prays. Let me die, because I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, like I said, Mount Carmel, where all of this fireball from heaven came, was in the very northern part of their nation. And when Elijah hears this, he's trying to get away to the southern part of Israel, to Beersheba, and then one more day's journey just in case. An angel tells him, you want to run, Elijah? Keep running. All the way to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb may or may not sound familiar, but Mount Sinai probably does. Well, it's the same place. 
And the reason why Mount Sinai sounds familiar to people who've been around the Bible for a little bit is because Mount Sinai is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. You remember? The, it's not a pop quiz. But do you remember what the first two commandments were? Have no other gods before me and make no graven image or no idols and worship them. And that's exactly what Elijah has just got done fighting with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. But now he's at Mount Sinai. He is a long way away from there. And Mount Sinai is also the place where Moses came down to find his people worshiping the golden calf idol. It took him 40 days to get there. When you're convinced that the answer is to run away, to run and pout, it takes a while to get past that sometimes. Chapter 19, verse 9, Elisha finds a cave and he spends the night there. And then the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's answer that has been going over and over and over in his mind during this whole trip from one end of the nation down to the other end of the nation and beyond is this. He says in verse 10, I've been absolutely loyal to the sovereign Lord. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. I've been absolutely loyal to the sovereign Lord. Even though the Israelites have, made, have abandoned the agreement that they made with you. They've torn down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they want to take my life. That's where this great man of God, Elijah, is at in his head. Now there's some lessons we need to learn from him about what happens when you go hide in the powder's cave. It's a trap that will hurt your faith and your family's devotion to the one true God. Let me share a few with you, okay? The first thing that happens is this. Don't take the bait and pout and run over a battle that's not yours. When God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? The answer really should have been, well, I'm pouting because that's the most honest thing he could have said. But why did he send him to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai? Well, because that's where Israel's problem of idolatry really began a long time before Elijah came on the scene. You see, here's the thing. Elijah was fighting a battle that wasn't his. Yes, idolatry was a problem. Yes, it was a sin. Yes, God's people had forgotten about it. No, God's people didn't care about it at the moment because they wanted to do what they wanted to do, kind of like us. When we know what God says, but we really don't care what God says because right now I want to do what I say and what I feel like. You know what it is to fight a battle that's not yours? When you just get overwhelmed and want to run away and hide in a cave? Maybe that battle's your kids. But that battle isn't yours 
they belong to God. Maybe the battle that you've been fighting is with your spouse. They belong to God too. It's not yours to fight. And if you watch the news at all, you certainly understand it right now, the battle that a lot of us feel like is being waged is a battle for our nation. But that's not our battle either. That battle belongs to God. These aren't new battles, and they're not our battles. They're God's battles for God to do what only God can do. We cannot fix people. That's God's battle. And when you take the bait to pout and run, you know where that leads, right? You end up by yourself in a cave. And if you haven't noticed, caves are a really dark place. Just like getting lost in your own head is a really dark place. Just ask Simone Biles. Olympic gymnast. When you go into a cave, it feels like you're there all alone. But like Elijah discovered, you're not there. God was already there before you got there. So don't take the bait and pout and run. You're just going to end up in a cave. And when you take that bait and you find yourself there in a cave, arguing with yourself about how it's not your fault, it's everybody else's fault, you're going to end up feeling special in the worst possible way. You remember what he said, right? I have been absolutely loyal to you. I am the only one left. And now they want to take my life. Now, he wasn't the only one left. He knew better than that because Obadiah had already told him there's a hundred other prophets that are still devoted to God, just like you are. I've saved them. I've hid them. I've been feeding them. I know they're there. Elijah knew he wasn't alone, but he acted like he was. <laughs> well, this is where you break out into nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? Turns out the old saying, misery loves company, is true. We need companionship. And when, we're, and when we spend time with other believers, we find out that we're not the only ones who struggle with a battle that may or may not be ours. You're not the only one who struggles with your adult kids. You're not the only one struggling with how to raise teens. You're not the only one losing a fight day after day after day with a two-year-old. Others have too. And you're not the only one struggling with your own demons. You see, God was right in his observation about Adam in the garden. It's not good for man to be alone. We're made in the image of God, a God who identifies as love. We're made like Him to connect, to relate, to interact, to empathize and encourage each other. That's a biblical reality that we comprehend now more than ever after this last year. Romans 12 emphasizes the importance of each individual 
in the life of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that the Spirit of God is at work within each one of us in order so that He can work in all of us together. That's why in that passage, God forbids church members to have the attitude of, well, I just don't belong, or I don't need you. I'm good all by myself. He urges us, like I would today, don't take the bait to pout and run. Because when you do, you just make the problem bigger. And you know that to be true from your own experience, don't you? When you pout and try to run away and escape from it all, you end up just making a problem bigger. What did Elijah say? They're all trying to kill me. Who? They're all trying to kill me. You mean all the prophets of Baal that you just had killed on Mount Carmel? Well, no, not them. You know, they're, uh, they're not a problem now. Okay, so the prophets of Asherah. The, uh, well, no, they're not a problem. King Ahab. That's, well, no, not, not him. Well, then who's trying to kill you? Uh, well, it's just, just Jezebel. Right. So she wants you dead. Not everyone. She wants you dead. And that's why you've taken the bait to run and pout. But that's the way it works when we try to escape alone to our cave. We start to obsess about the issue and we keep hashing it over and over in our head until it becomes bigger than life. I am so glad that Elijah is the only person in history that's ever had that problem, aren't you? Here's another thing. When you take the bait to run and hide and pout, what happens is you start to let the noise overpower God's voice. That's why what God tells him to do next in 1 Kings 19 verse 11 is this. He says, Elijah, I want you to go out and I want you to stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Elijah didn't want to be around anybody. He says, I need you to go stand in the presence of the God because he's about to pass by. And it then goes on to say that a great blast of wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And next there was a great earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And in verse 12 it says, after the earthquake there was a fire, but the fire was not the Lord. And after the fire came a soft whisper. And when Elijah goes out to investigate, it says in verse 3, that that's when God speaks, 13, God speaks to him, Elijah, why are you here? How does Elijah respond? with the exact same script that he has told himself over and over and over. It's pretty typical, isn't it? You go over the conversation in your head while you're in the car. You go over the conversation in your head that night when you're trying to go to sleep. In the middle of the night when you wake up, you go over the same conversation and you rehearse the script just like you always have. And the next morning when you climb in the shower, you say the same thing over and over and over again. You've told yourself the same thing so many times that you've memorized the script. And when God finally gets your attention, your script 
has made you deaf to what God's telling you. Elijah, why are you here, pouting alone in a cave, instead of confronting the real problem? The problem was not the prophets of Baal. The problem was not the prophets of Asherah. The problem wasn't even King Ahab or even Jezebel, in a way, even though she was the one wearing the tunic in that family. She needed to be confronted about the damage that she was doing to God and their faith in God. But Elijah couldn't do that because he'd taken the bait to run and pout. And that's the problem. When you take the bait to run and pout, you forfeit God's plan for you. Who else is going to help them see God if not you, Elijah? Who else is going to help them hear his voice if not you, Elijah? Who else is going to speak for God if not you, Elijah? So why are you here, Elijah? Why are you here alone in a cave pouting? And that's why in verse 15 and 16 of 1 Kings 19, the Lord says to him, go back the way you came, through the desert to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel as king over Syria, also known as Aram. Now, Haziel was a foreign king of another nation. God wants his prophet to anoint another guy as king of another nation. Yeah, things are about to change. And in verse 16, he says, And then I want you to appoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, to take your place as my prophet. You see, God wants Elijah to know that change is about to happen. And it may not happen all in your lifetime, but it's still going to happen, even if you don't see it. But when you take the bait of pout and run, instead of confronting it, you miss out on the opportunity that God's giving you to be the difference in somebody else's life. This is not about revenge. This is not about putting somebody in their place and giving somebody their comeuppance. This is, not, this is about instead lifting somebody up and giving them the dignity of an honest opportunity to hear God's voice. You ready? Are you ready to accept God's challenge? For you. Are you ready to stop trying to escape consequences that you don't like and don't want to face and trust God in the confrontation? There are a few nutheads that like confrontation. Nobody likes being around them. That's why we don't want to be like you know, that, that person. But when you choose not to take the bait of pout and run, you're going to have a choice to make. So don't take the bait, but instead take Jesus' advice. Now the following three things about how not to take the bait of pout and run, I, I, I plagiarized, they're not, they're, they're not for me, but I took them from Jesus, so they're probably going to be pretty good. Here's the first thing. 
Don't take the bait of pout and run. Instead, confront that person in private. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 18, verse 15. If another believer sins against you, you must go to them privately and attempt to resolve the matter. If they listen to you and confess, then you've restored your relationship. I don't know how to do that. I don't know. Read the verse. Maybe Jesus will give you an idea. How, how about this? I've been meaning to talk to you about this. I owe it to you to talk with you about this. And if they agree to, sit down, take a deep breath, and let it out slowly. I need to tell you something, and it's probably going to be awkward. I need to tell you something, and I'm pretty sure that there's a good chance that my words aren't going to come out right, but I still need to try. And try this. When you, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever the issue is, I feel, and again, fill in the blank. Now, try this instead of starting that conversation with, you never, because what they're going to hear is, well, yeah, I, sometimes I do. And they're going to start arguing with you in, your head, in their head instead of listening to the issue. And it's going to be just as frustrating if you try to start the conversation out with, well, you always, because they're going to say, no, not always. Maybe a lot, maybe more than I should, but I don't always do it. And they're not going to hear what you're actually saying. So when you start, start with this. When you, then I feel... Because when you start a conversation with you never or you always, it never works and it always goes wrong. But on the contrary, it's almost impossible to argue with when you, then I feel. Now I'm just going to admit right now, just like a few weeks ago, as soon as you left, the rest of the day was spent calling somebody an idiot. The rest of this day and the rest of this week is probably going to be with people that that say, you know, we need to talk, because when you, I feel, and you're not going to like me very well. But try it this way. When you come home late and don't call, I feel like I'm not important to you. When you spend more money than we agreed to, I feel like you don't care or respect when you make fun of me in front of your friends, I feel like I don't mean anything to you. See, when you approach it that way, when you, I feel, now they have to ask themselves, is that how I want to make them feel? If not, problem solved. Is it guaranteed? Nope. But it will work more often than not. And if it doesn't work, Jesus has got you covered. 
Don't take the bait to pout and run just because it doesn't work like he or Ed told you to try. Bring in a neutral mediator. Next verse, Matthew 18, verse 16. If he won't listen, even Jesus understood that it doesn't always work. If he won't listen, then take one or two others back with you. So that everything you say will be confirmed by two or three witnesses. That's another way of saying that when you say this is a problem, and they say, nuh-uh, because that's the mature conversations that we have with people at this point, right? You'll have two or three other people there with you to say, uh-huh. The idea is to take others whose opinion they trust. Now, we're not talking about, you hurt my feelings, you made me cry. Well, grow up, move on. But what we are talking about is the stuff done in secret that's illegal, immoral, or dangerous. Find individuals who are objective enough to be able and willing to hear both of you. And because there's no guarantee that even if you do that, it's going to work out, you're still going to have the bait presented to you to pout and run, and yet the opportunity that we have then is to practice intervention. Jesus says in verse 17, if the follower refuses to listen to them, report it to the church. That sounds horrible. That sounds like we're guilty of gossip, right? I'm just reading Jesus' words. If they refuse to listen even to the church, then it says treat them as you would an unbeliever or a tax collector. Well, how did Jewish people treat unbelievers and tax collectors? Well, they didn't. They didn't treat them anyway because they didn't have anything to do with them. They were essentially invisible to them. They were non-existent. The church... To most of the people that would read that and hear what Jesus said, they were people that belonged to a group of believers that met together in their home. And if somebody isn't connected to a group that loves them and cares for them, it's not going to be any big thing to not have anything to do with them anymore, is it? Excommunication is a really big church word. And it's usually a really big deal with really big fat lawsuits. But kicking somebody out of your circle of friends, blocking their calls, ignoring their emails, their text messages, voicemails. I mean, it happens so often now. We've actually got a word for it in our current culture. You ghosted me. Yeah, that's kind of the same thing. You don't think you can do that? You've already been doing it by taking the bait of pout and run. The only difference is you left them 
when you ran away. Instead of being honest with them and first communicating to them why. Is it harder to do that or harder to run away from the opportunity that God gives you to help someone follow God's path? That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Because we've all had those relationships. We've all fought those battles. And the idea of what Jesus says in Matthew 18 scares the bejesus out of us, whatever that is. But it ought to scare it out of us to ignore what Jesus said, right? David, I want you in the praise team. Join me back up on stage. God asked Elijah, why are you here? Well, honestly, he was there because he had taken the bait to pout and run. So if you're here this morning, I don't know what your week's been like, and I certainly don't know what your week is about to be like. But I do know this. If I take the bait of pout and run when things don't go the way I think they should. I am wasting the opportunities that God has given me to do what only God can do through me. We don't talk a lot about Matthew 18 and what Jesus said in this congregation. And honestly, I'm glad about that because we're not about to go through the list and start kicking people out the door. But what we do need to be all about is loving everyone enough to have an honest conversation instead of just taking the bait to pout and run. Is there something you need prayer about? Over in this side room, we'll have a member of our prayer team or one of our elders meet with you and pray with you and take your cares and concerns before the throne of God. Is there something you need to repent of? Change the direction of your life about? Hope you do that. If you need somebody to encourage you toward that, hope you say something to them about it. But that opportunity is yours. While during the singing of this next song, we stand together and encourage each other. Let's do that. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.